Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We are back from our summer break and we are delighted to be back. Today, Helen Thompson, Adam Tooze and I are going to be talking about what we've learned about politics, economics and the world order during 18 months of pandemic. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which has its own weekly podcast. Recent episodes include Dominic West reading Patrick Lee Fermor, a mini-series of encounters with the lives and voices of women in medieval literature, and an interview with me about Peter Thiel, the subject of my latest LRB piece. Just search for the LRB podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For this conversation, Helen and I were joined on Tuesday from New York by Adam. We're talking about his new book, Shutdown, but as with any conversation between Adam and Helen, this one goes in all sorts of different directions. But we started with the question of the title of his book. Adam, you're definitely not a lockdown sceptic by any means. But you are sceptical about some of the ways in which we frame lockdown and the language of lockdown, the idea that it it was or is this coercive, top-down form of politics and government, and it misses all the ways in which what we've been through in the last 18 months, a lot of it has been bottom-up uh, and governments have been reacting. And so your book is shut down, not lockdown. Just take us through the difference, shutdown and lockdown. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I think there are some places in the world where the language of lockdown is entirely appropriate and it would be, you know, it would be scandalous in a sense to put that in question. I mean, if you look at South Africa, for instance, uh, in the townships there in the spring of 2020, there was, you know, really the deployment of armed force in India, likewise. And, you know, even within in the West uh, or the global north, you know, there's a huge difference between the way in which the social distancing and so on was handled in a city like New York where it was basically peer pressure, we did have a lockdown, but that was in fact in response to the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer, where there was a curfew and police cars driving around with loud hailers telling us to go indoors at 8pm. But in Paris, for instance, there clearly was a sort of coercive, soft coercion by comparison with India and South Africa, but nevertheless a coercive regime. In general, however, it does seem to me to be a term, you know, which is essentially part of a polemic. I mean, we're using this language because it came out of an argument which was couched in terms of an imposition of order from the top, repression from the top. And that just doesn't accord with the facts. So, you know, if you do track, for instance, people's credit card use or, or use their mobile phones to monitor where they move rather spookily, you can, and the IMF has done the econometrics on this, determine that the majority, they estimate 60% of the reduction in mobility was prior to any government order. And also, I think we should, if we can, avoid the sort of top down, bottom up language, because in a sense, the biggest move to cover from the private sector that I describe in the book is the financial markets. And you know, they're probably best not described as sort of bottom up actors. But when, you know, when JP Morgan or BlackRock start liquidating huge quantities of assets, because that's what their investors demand, and then the government by way of the central banks has to step in to enable them to engage in that private self protection. It's more kind of horizontal, right? It's more, it's, or, you know, of course, the extreme interpretation is they are, in fact, the sovereign. But I think that too goes too far, because at that moment, they desperately need the central banks to step in. So the picture the book is trying to paint, and by way of this name, this title, hold open a more open-ended account. Yeah, I think there's several really interesting things here. I mean, I think what we could see in, in Britain was how much of the initial retreat of people into their houses was actually done on an entirely voluntary basis because of the fact that the British government, and Boris Johnson's government, was so unkeen on anything that could be called lockdown in the first part of, of March, contrary to what was going on in, in most other European countries. And there was, I think, some sense here in which actually the way the majority of people responded on the ground was actually what pushed, if you like, the government into the, the position that it ended up having to take over lockdown. And I think if they thought that it was lock 
lockdown that they had to do, as opposed to going along with what most people were already doing, that they would find it much, much um, harder to to contemplate. So I think there's something in the way in which enough people responded to the situation that actually can't be separated from the fact that it's state actors making the decisions about what the actual rules are. I think the other thing that's good about thinking about shutdown, though, is is that it really does focus on what happened on the economy side in those first couple of months. And I think I think Adam is right. He said this before in that it's very easy, I think, to for people to forget now what a huge moment the March 2020 financial crisis was. In some ways, some of the things that were going on make it a deeper financial crisis, I think, albeit one that in some sense lasted for a shorter period of time than what happened in in um, in 2008. And then separate from what was happening on the financial side of things, we've got the fact that actually significant parts of the world economy on the productive side literally shut down. Mm. I don't think lockdown really can capture that. Shutdown is quite literally what happened to a significant part of the world's production, certainly for the first couple of months. Like the auto industry, the car industry is a really interesting example because there's an effect from people not going into showrooms and buying the cars. Then in Europe, there's a very interesting labour history moment here where it isn't the trade unions, actually. It's shop floor organisation in several plants in Spain where they've been uh, incidents drive the, the shutdown. So it's a strike wave, an informal strike wave, a wildcat strike wave in the middle of 2020. It's kind of like historical... You know, there's a slight sense of a historical disjuncture because, you know, when we think about big moments in history in the 20th century, you do, you're, when you're coming from the left, you ask, you know, what's happening on the shop floor? Well, something was happening on the shop floor in the spring of 2020. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have Elon Musk in California posturing, you know, precisely in the, you know, don't tread on me libertarian, let me run my Tesla plant for as long as I like, damn you, to the very last minute. So he, as it were, enacts his a lockdown of the Tesla plant, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, Dame Levents in Spain is responding to the fact that it's it's dealing with a shop floor uprising, essentially. So there are there are very different sort of political economies being enacted here. And I do think the lockdown version is really the there's a sort of spectacular quality to it. I mean, you know, Elon Musk is enacting his own persecution at the hands of the liberal nanny state in, in California. And to Helen's point about 2008 and 2020, you write quite a lot about the ways in which, trying to avoid language of top-down, but key decision-makers were really shaped by the 2008 crisis and then in Europe by 2010, 2011. How much of that was a help and how much of that was a hindrance, do you think, for what they did? I mean, on balance, I think, you know, this is an example of of learning. I mean, I think it's hard to deny that. I mean, I know I know, I come across as a sort of over-optimistic liberal when you say that kind of thing. But I think, I think that is undeniably the case. I mean, in the case of the Fed, its practices, you know, they know how at this point to do very large-scale bond purchases. And as Helen was saying, I mean, by the end of March, they're doing, I mean, it's insane. just the volume is, is staggering, you know, a million dollars a second, 70 to 80 billion dollars a day, they buy 5% of a, of a market, which is generally reckoned to be too big for any actor to really influence. They buy 5% of the market in a matter of weeks. So this is, a, this is really an unprecedented intervention. But you could say that's kind of relatively low-level learning. And I think some critics of the Fed would say that they actually weren't thinking hard enough in the year or two. Really, the trouble starts in September 2019. They hadn't been thinking hard enough, really, about the potential instability in the Treasury market. On the European side, I think it's a more classic kind of big picture learning story, though, again, they wobble. There's this nightmarish press conference that Lagarde gives where, you know, it sounds as though she's sort of channeling Jean-Claude Trichet from 2011, who at the time took a very hard line on the spreads of Italian bonds. And and then they back away from that. And, and we're in a world of learning. And, in, you know, at all levels, I mean, I think it's not just happening in the central banks. The story's been told many times now, but Olaf Scholz at the German finance ministry is clearly part of a, you know, a team really learning effort on the German progressive side or the progressive centre, centre-left side of German politics, trying to undo the damage of 2010 and figure out how to avoid a repetition of that. So at different levels, with a rather different kind of flavour in each case, but definitely, yes, we are... 
living in the under the shadow of and in the aftermath of for better for better as as much for worse of 2008 and after i think on the on the us side in particular what's really interesting is the way in which if you look in like the first few weeks of march well actually from the moment when the the markets really started to move after um, Mohammed bin Salman had crashed oil prices over the the previous weekend, the Fed's first response actually fails, and it fails quite spectacularly. It makes no difference. In one sense, I think you can say that 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 bit of time, whether it was 10 days or two weeks, I would correct me, is that you can actually say that everything that they thought that they'd learned about how to deal with things since 2008 they put in place and they found that it didn't work and that that fear that had been there, that actually there was going to come a point in which the Fed couldn't keep all this show on the road, so to speak, had arrived. And we were back to a, a world in which risk in the financial markets in relation to high levels of debt was back with us. And then what we see is, is that when they pursue, let's call it QE infinity, as it was sometimes called, that they could actually pull things back to the way that they had been um, after 2008. But the caveat to that is is the question of, well, they never really got back to a position um, where they stabilised things after 2008 because they went down the road of being able, at least for the Fed, to be able to end QE4 in, in, in 2014. But as Adam's already suggested, there was a version of QE that was back in place by September 2019 after the problems in those in the repo markets again so I think that that moment of this doesn't actually work has kind of been sort of written out in some sense of the story but I think it was a very very real fear at the beat in the first part of March yeah I think at both levels I mean I I would follow Helen absolutely I mean I think they were a little late actually I mean no one really wants to niggle but in fact if they'd acted They'd seen the scale of this potential problem building up um, in late February, early March. They could have supported repo markets to a larger extent earlier, and the markets were screaming for it. And it wasn't there for a crucial day or two. And in financial markets on this scale, with this kind of volume of business, that matters. So I think it's you know it's cruel and unusual to belabor this point, but there is and the, the significant thing I think is that they just didn't quite get it. I also entirely agree with Helen that we shouldn't, as it were, in light of the shock of 2020, romanticise the, the era before. I mean, if you look back at the IMF's report for the beginning of 2020, it was already painting an extremely disturbed picture. And there was absolutely every reason to think the plumbing of the US Treasury market was in serious need of, of sorting after this moment in the, the previous fall. And I think altogether, the, the, you know, one of the, the big picture questions that come out of this is whether we, you know, credibly can any longer offer a horizon of normalization, because that was definitely what both the ECB and the Fed were clinging to, the Bank of England as well, in the period, shall we say, of relative stabilization after 2015. I mean, even if QE was continuing, it was continuing with an outlook of ending at some point in future and then us moving towards positive interest rates and so on. That vision of normalisation had already been broken in 2019. It was broken because you know there were signs of deflation in Europe. So Draghi, as his last final act, stepped in, and the American Treasury markets were just not proving resilient to the prospect of any you know substantial increase in interest rates. And then COVID happened, and now you know we're on this sustained intervention train, which we will be arguing about into 2022, and the horizon of normalisation will be held out. But increasingly, it seems to me. It, it's losing credibility. I don't think there is any concept of normalisation any longer. Where these, yeah, where, maybe I'm not being too polite. <laughs> where, where, where this is um, concerned. I mean, I think you could argue that for the ECB being so late to the job, so to speak, where QE was concerned, we're talking about perhaps even even a bit less perhaps than a, than a year um, before Draghi was back on QE after the first QE programme finished. And then... If you look at the at the Fed, sure, they didn't go back to some version of QE until the autumn of 2019, but they really got hardly anywhere with raising interest rates and had really had to, to back off in 2016 after the Chinese financial crisis, the fallout from the first move that Janet Yellen made. So I think that prospect of normalisation simply belongs to history now. 
Adam, in your book, there are a whole series of, I don't know, if, I don't suppose they're paradoxes, but they're kind of conundrums. And one of them is that uh, you talk about, you use the phrase or you borrow the phrase democratic money to describe a certain way in which money can be used politically. And central banks, independent central banks were created to guard against that. And yet here they were, in some sense at least, doing it, doing democratic money, but not democratically, if that is a fair way of capturing it. So what was it? I mean, is, it, is there such a thing as technocratic democratic money? Yeah, I mean, so the phrase democratic money is almost to be too good to be true. I mean, it was something that we'd always, I mean, you know, progressive leftist critics of the modern central banking regime, or perhaps we should say the central banking regime of the 90s and the early 2000s, had always suspected, as it were, that in a nutshell, that's what the issue was. And then it turns out in this collection of papers by Rudiger Dornbusch, who was this very influential teacher of international macro at MIT, inevitably, in the 80s and 90s, he actually literally described the project of central banking in its heyday, independent central banking, as putting an end to democratic money, which I think he more or less, I mean, I think he basically uses the phrase is always bad money. So why then are central banks able to act on the scale that they do? And I mean, my, my basic, um, the basic suggestion of, of, of shutdown is that, you know, we shouldn't get too excited about the scale of central bank action because it's very tempting to see in it a kind of second coming of 1940s, 1950s era, concerted monetary and fiscal policy, a sort of mega Keynesianism for the 21st century. I think there are two lots of quibbles about that. One is a set of technical issues about why they are in fact intervening, which we've just been talking about. It's being driven by the financial market. So it's not some sort of sovereign democratic decision, but rather backstopping financial activity. And the second question is, well, if this is clearly, as it were, state action, you know, what does it mean about this question of democratic money? And I mean, my answer in the book is simply to say, well, if it is democratic money, clearly democracy's changed. I mean, that's the crucial thing, right? It's, it's, it's very little to be feared from democracy at this point, because behind the term democracy actually stood not, you know, the orderly processes of some manicured proportional representation system with a clutch of, you know, compatible parties, but the political economy of the 70s and 80s class struggle basically, right? Supercharged clashes between organized capital and labor. That's really what was on the minds of people like Dornbush. And clearly that isn't our reality. So the freedom of action, the condition of possibility for the freedom of action of these central bankers who are essentially responding to the demands of the destabilized financial markets is a political vacuum. The fact that they can be extremely confident, despite all the crazy scaremongering in the markets right now, that whatever they do, they're not going to unleash, you know, an escalation of a wage price spiral driven by a powerful organized labor movement demanding political attention and, you know, beer and sandwiches at number 10. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so much to unpack here. I think that what's really, in a way, paradoxical is, is that if we go back to that story that Adam's saying about telling about the the 70s and the, the 80s, and the the rise of the let's call it the 1990s form of central banking that all in its public justification anyway rested on the assumption that actually money wasn't a political question or a democratic yeah. question that the the ends of monetary policy were uncontested they were price stability and that central bankers were the best people to decide monetary policy to that end and then you do get the central bankers in the first part of the, or at least from 2004 in the 21st century, starting to worry a bit about inflation. Again, it's really energy inflation, that the oil price inflation in particular, um, that they're worried about. And you do start to see some, particularly in the Eurozone, some political pushback against the, the decisions that the central bankers are making. But then 2007, 2008 comes about, and this is a central bank moment. This is central banks and the Fed, obviously, in particular, that that has to rescue things. And then we move into the post-2008 world of quantitative easing and zero um, interest rates, in which it looks like the big economic decisions are being taken by central bankers. We see pushback against that this time in the United States. I think that you get a stronger sort of narrative there, both from the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, but also to some extent with some of the things that Trump said about the way in which that this is monetary policy for the rich. 
uh, and that this kind of monetary policy fuels wealth inequality. But ultimately, we hit this next crisis, March 2020, where we're very dependent on what the central banks do again. And as Adam says, it it isn't because of anything that's going on in democratic politics here. It's because of what's going on in the financial markets. But I think that that idea that actually monetary policy is contested politically and has to be contested politically, and it does have distributional consequences, is actually part of the political landscape that we're now in and part of the the political landscape that we're going to stay in um, for some time. Partly, I think that is because the energy issues is going to generate some inflationary pressure, but it's also because parts of the left see in monetary policy the opportunity to do the kinds of things that Adam was talking about in terms of the post-war temperature democratic aspirations, that they think that this is an opportunity and they are going to make it part of contested politics for the next few years. And if I could just add one thing then, Adam, before you come back, you also suggest, as I read your book, that we shouldn't be so surprised. There's a sense that, and you you do use the term, your neoliberalism is this project and what has happened recently, but also perhaps not so recently, is somehow a challenge to it, that there is the possibility opening up of radical challenges to the system. But the other way to think about it is that neoliberalism is fundamentally pragmatic. And what we've seen is the pragmatism of it writ large, rather than the radical challenge. Yes, exactly. I I, I mean, the neoliberalism question is one I shied away from in doing Crashed, but I felt it would just be perverse to avoid it writing about the current moment, in part precisely because of the new political conjuncture that I agree with Helen we have moved into. I mean, I agree with Helen absolutely that there has been this politicisation of money, and that is a fundamental challenge, as David, you're suggesting, to, as it were, the parameters of the neoliberal order. But I also think history is moving really fast here. So we're not in the John McDonnell, like Green New Deal moment anymore either right you know that which i which i which i would absolutely see in the terms that helen described it that moment also passed and it passed so quickly and so i hope shutdown contributes precisely to sort of orientating ourselves in the moment after that and it's warning against a conflation of what actually happened in 2020 actually existing interventions with the grand historic vision that was being opened up by the Green New Deal, MMT, you know, left in 2019, as recently as 2019. So I'm trying to very precisely sort of describe the specific moment that we're in right now, which I do agree to come to both of your more general point, involves a opening up of the parameters of political debate about the boundaries of the economy, of economic policy, and so on. But yes, when I think we come to sort of sifting through the wreckage of the, so we're born to have a better word, let's call it the Dornbush pure form of 1990s neoliberalism, I do think we have to reckon with its pragmatic, you know, it's, I mean, I cite David Harvey, who I think in a very crisp way, some say rather brutal, but I think in a rather crisp way, and you could cite Andrew Gamble in the same direction, described, as it were, neoliberalism as this hybrid combination of strong market structures and strong interventionist pragmatic tendencies. The other line of very strong continuity is inequality. If we think of neoliberalism, not just as a set of ideas and not just as a set of governmental practices, somebody like James Meadway has encouraged us to say, if we think of it also as a social project, as a project of class politics, basically, then, then what's really striking, of course, is the massive continuities across this divide, which is what Helen was bringing up. And then in the book, what I do is open up a fourth flank, which is to say, well, what if neoliberalism is a geopolitical project? It was always basically the project of American hegemony. In that case, we may indeed be talking about a rupture, but it's not a rupture that opens, to my mind, at least in a progressive direction, because it opens really towards a revivified American project of military power, of hard power, of multidimensional confrontation with China, which is, of course, something that we also faced in 2020. So yes, a crisis of neoliberalism, perhaps not its end. And if a crisis, then what future does it open towards? And my sense is that we ought not to be too optimistic about that. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's probably a good moment to talk about China because it's a, a big part of the story that you tell. But just to go back to what we were talking about, there is a, a nice moment of irony in your account. There are people inside the Chinese political finance monetary establishment who argue that China needs to go down the democratic money route, do what is happening in the US or in Europe or in Japan. But I think you use this phrase, monetary conservatism wins out in China. The communists in this respect, the so-called communists, are the conservatives while the neoliberals are the communists. Or is that putting it too crudely? Yeah, I mean, in the in the, in the Chinese case, it, the whole thing takes on a further kind of level of performative unreality in the sense that, you know, it's perfectly obvious that the entire monetary order in China is political, right? I mean, and it would be wrong to imagine that nothing moves without the say-so of the CCP, but ultimately the CCP is in a position to relatively straightforwardly impose its power, as we're seeing, I think, and I think we are going to see. Of course, this is a bit speculative, a bit of a gamble, bit prognostic, but I imagine that financial contagion is not going to be the central problem from Evergrande. I think there are a variety of other things that could spiral out from that, but financial contagion in the Western sense of a sort of a wildfire running through the Chinese financial system is, I don't think, the, the top of the main worry here. So, in this sense, this argument within the Chinese regime, which basically begins in the spring, where various Chinese economists orientated more towards the West say we ought to be doing a bigger stimulus. Why don't we do something like the Treasury is doing? Why doesn't the People's Bank of China buy Chinese government debt? Wouldn't that, as it were, solve any issues that we might have with regard to financing a larger stimulus and it would help keep interest rates down? And then in this in this world in which it is clear, you know, that all of the major banks are themselves extensions of the policy apparatus of the People's Bank of China, like an argument, like a sort of like mock battle breaks out in which a bunch of people pose as essentially sort of Chinese, you know, Bundesbanker with Chinese characteristics, who who suddenly are saying, oh, no, you know, that would be to breach a fundamental rule constraining the People's Bank of China. And then people point out to them that like, well, you know, rules, schmules, and they say, well, well, that's our last line of defence against the slippery slope of fiscal incontinence, and it's and it's the whole thing is a. And what's astonishing is that is that Western investors play along with this too, right? So a bevy of Western investors position themselves on the outside of this, and I think almost with a view to exercising pressure on their governments at home in the West, start saying, well, you know what, the Chinese bonds. They look they far more conservatively managed. Maybe, you know, maybe China is going to be the champion of hard money in the 21st century. You know, you, you really have to sort of, at that point, pinch yourself and go, what on earth are we talking about here? But clearly QE, this, is, this goes back to Helen's point in a sense, is being politicised from both sides. QE is being politicised from the left as a distributional issue. And despite its evidently system-supporting, Bismarckian, conservative, you know, everything must change, so everything remains the same kind of logic, there are a group of conservatives, both in China and outside, who are, continue to treat it as like the phantom menace of mega inflation or something. And then you act out this argument, I mean, all over the place. I mean, we, there was literally a sort of reverb set up between these debates in China on the pages of Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and, you know, the likes of BlackRock, and other major Western investors who were using China as a conservative stick with which to beat the uh, irresponsible Western central bankers. I think that it is it is pretty ironic. But I think the other thing that's really interesting here is the way at that point of the financial crisis, the latter part of it this time of late March, early April, when there was still you know a dollar shortage problem, the one thing that happened if you look at the whole sort of, if you like, geopolitical situation between the United States and China, where there was movement towards each other indirectly rather than movement apart, was the fact that the Fed was willing, albeit indirectly, to provide the possibility of support for China borrowing dollars. And if we think of the whole way in which you talked about in, in Crash Adam and the way in which the Fed had constructed this lender of last um, resort, structure essentially for the, the euro dollar markets from the summer of 2007 
onwards, you can see that crisis in March, April is the point in which, in a small way at least, at least in the final instance, China was brought into the system rather than kept out of the system. And this was at the same time, like as Trump was still in the White House, blame was being thrown around between both sides about the the origins of COVID, the preliminary trade deal looked like it might be um, in jeopardy, situation was getting worse in Hong Kong, etc. But if you like at the centre of the world's financial system, there was movement towards rather than movement away. Yeah, I mean, maybe for our listeners, we should explain that. I mean, the, the people that borrow, as, as we now know, um, the people that borrow in China and borrow dollars are clearly not the Chinese government, but Chinese corporates do. And they do it simply because dollar markets are rich and liquid and you know the interest rates are favourable. But that does expose them then if the dollar gets more expensive or if funding dries up in dollar markets. And so at that point, the nightmare of the Fed is that the Chinese authorities might be provoked into selling their you know, trillion dollar stacks of US treasuries so as to provide their private sector with with funding. And, and um, this happened on a really large scale in this near miss financial crisis of 2015, 2016. And the worry was that it would happen again in the spring of 2020, because there were foreign holders of treasuries that were selling on a large scale in the spring, and the US Treasury market was proving unable to absorb those sales. They were, it's worth emphasizing, not selling out of the dollar. They were selling into liquidity, into cash within the dollar system. So this was not the nightmare of nightmares, the sort of early 2000s fantasy of some sort of Chinese attack on the United States by way of the treasury market. But then, as Helen's saying, what the Fed did was a, it did the swap lines again, this time for mainly for Asia rather than Europe, unlike in 2008, where it's mainly for Europe. And then they created this innovative new facility which was a facility where foreign central banks, which didn't have swap lines with the Fed, and the People's Bank of China doesn't have a swap line with the Fed and is quite unlikely ever to get one, I think. But it does now have access, on terms they would have to agree with the Fed, to a repo window where it doesn't sell the Treasury owns, but it, as it were, uses them as collateral for cash borrowing. We don't actually know, Helen may correct me here, but I'm not sure that we're aware that the Chinese actually used this on a substantial scale, but it was opened up and it was seen as a sign of movement towards China. And I would say in general that this has been one of the difficult things to make sense of in 2020, or rather if one does make sense of it, it has rather alarming implications. There's this incredible sort of lack of synchronization, lack of coherence between different elements of what you might call American strategy. So by the summer of 2020, the economic side of the Trump team, the the Treasury team, the the trade representative, who were the super hawks in the early phase of the administration, were the last people with sort of functional lines of communication to the Chinese. So Robert Lighthizer in particular, who became a bit of a hobby horse of lots of us, like Quinn Slobodian wrote fascinating things about Lighthizerism and the new nationalism in US trade policy, He was one of the last people who actually had a good line to Beijing and his counterparts there because they sort of felt they recognized who he was. Right, He was a hawkish American economic nationalist and you could kind of buy him off. So there was this weird way in which this zone of, on the one hand, the, the high finance and on the other hand, the trade policy, even if in the trade policy area it was coded antagonistic, compared to what else was going on in the realm of ideological confrontation and hard power and tech sanctions, began to look like the bit where deals could be done. I think that is absolutely true. And But I think that it's also the, the finance side of it is partly explained or can be perhaps in good part explained by the primacy, if you like, of financial questions at moments of emergency like March, April 2020 was because there was the prospect of something pretty bad happening if, China hadn't been brought towards the Fed system, not included in it directly, as you said, via swap lines. So in one sense, that had to happen. The logic of the post-2008 world made it necessary. And then the way in which the other policymakers in the United States responded to the tech questions and the trade questions and say Hong Kong, I think has more contingency to it. I think that makes sense. I think if you, the dollar system does have an inherent logic, which is as much deep, well, it's deeply embedded in commercial logic. It's important not to think of it as excessively political terms, I think. It has political implications and it gives the United States huge power. But the basic thing that holds that 
thick network of the dollar system in place is commercial calculation on a gigantic scale. But yes, I think there's a logic of contingency versus structure. So the financial stuff is, if you like, structural and the political escalation is is contingent. It's also, I think, a logic, I suppose, and it's been my working hypothesis since trying to think through the 2008 moment, it also reflects the increasing incoherence of Republican Party politics as a bracket for the deployment of and the rationalization of American power. So I think what else is happening here, and this does have a structural element to it, is, as it were, an increasing fissure between the likes of Nushin and Jay Powell, who are card-carrying Republicans, Trump appointees on the one hand, who represent and articulate that structural necessity of continuity, Helen, that you're invoking. And on the other hand, another group of figures, also associated with the party, but also associated with the apparatus of the Pentagon and national security, who in their own terms are also articulating a structural necessity, which is America's got to do something about the challenge posed by China on the basis of its long-run economic growth and its alien political system. That, too, is a structural necessity, in their lights, at least. And what's so striking about 2020 is that these two things suddenly converge in a really dramatic way over the summer of 2020. Can I ask a sort of broader extension of that and and looking forward? You you say at the end of the book, drawing lessons, what we've learned from the past 18 months, and I think you use the phrase that we we are seeing in your book does this, it follows the story to Africa, to Asia, through emerging markets. There is an ongoing decentering from the West, I think that's the phrase that you use, in a dollar-based world. I mean, these Mm. two things have been true through the last 18 months and, as you say, accelerating. It doesn't seem it can carry on like that. Well, I mean, I think that's the question. Whether or not it can is the question. Um, Right now, that's what we face and that's what the managers of the dollar system cope with all the time. And one of the countervailing forces that gives this stability is that we're seeing empowered, competent, well-resourced actors on the emerging, multiplying, increasingly dynamic, let's call it for want of a better word, periphery of the system that were very much in effect in 2020. And when, and what I'm talking about is central banks and treasuries managed in countries like um, Indonesia or Brazil, for instance, that take just two really, really large examples. And with the kind of national foreign exchange reserves that they have at their disposal, with the kind of expertise and experience that they have at the command centers, with the goodwill that they've built with major actors in Wall Street who are interested in long-run relationships with them, and then with a propitious, supportive Fed regime, they were able to come through this crisis in a way that no one really anticipated, I think. There was a lot of extreme alarm in early 2020 about a sudden shock. This doesn't mean that they were able to cope with pandemic necessarily, but in terms of the risks to the financial system, America, this is more kind of like a John Eikenberry point about the resilience of the system, right, is that it, it has stabilizing forces out there in the world. This isn't, as it were, just a centrifugal logic in which people spin away into more and more intense regional rivalries that ultimately challenge the United States, which we also do see. But in the dollar system, at least, we also see the buildup of managerial capacity. It's more like the story that unfolded in the North Atlantic, you might say, between 1945 and the late 1960s. That didn't necessarily make for stability. In the long run, the Bretton Woods system blew up. But what then replaced it in the 70s was a dirty floating type model. So I think that's my sort of outlook on how this dollar system will work. How that then interacts with the you know dimensions of hard power, regional geopolitical competition and political dynamics, that's where the, the, the huge kind of mind-blowing questions arise. I think I would sort of move away from the paradox being expressed, if it is a paradox, between a dollar system and then a decline of the West or even using the West. In fact, I would reject the idea of using the West in this context. I think if you go back to the beginning of 2020 and then look through the rest of that year to the end, really to the point in which the EU and China agreed the comprehensive agreement on investment, I think you can say is is that U.S.-China relations by the end of 2020 were significantly worse than they were at the the beginning 
you know, of the year. I mean, if you start at the beginning of the year with that provisional trade agreement, that was committing China to make quite a significant increase in the energy it was going to import from the um, United States, including liquid natural gas. And as we know, even though that Joe Biden wasn't president um, by the end of 2020, when he did become president, then the situation between relations between the United States and China haven't meaningfully improved. During the course of 2020, I think it's reasonable to say that China-EU relations, I wouldn't say that they got better, but they didn't get worse. And they ended that year with that investment agreement. Meanwhile, though, during the course of 2020, China's relations with various other countries in the Pacific, including, I would say, all of the Pacific Quad countries or the non-American Pacific Quad countries, so India, Australia, and Japan, they all got worse, you know, including military skirmishes with India in the, I think it was the summer of 2020. So I think in, in that sense that what we saw during the, the year was a, a separation of the United States from the, the European Union over the China questions, with Britain swinging more in the American direction than in the EU direction. And the issues between China and some of its neighbours, perhaps you might even say its most significant neighbours in the in the Indo-Pacific, including over the South China Sea, getting worse during the, the course of the year. Japan's policy seems to have moved to being at least in rhetoric and perhaps even a little bit in, in action towards something that is on Taiwan, uh, a position that the Chi- for, for, for which the Chinese are deeply opposed. So I think that in some sense that this is a story of the way in which the world is now focused in its geopolitics on the US-China relationship in the context of the Pacific and much less so in the context um, of Europe. And that in some sense, in the same way in which 2008 was in part a story about the diminution of European influence in the financial and European banks in, in, in particular, the 2020 has been a story in which we see Europe's less. And I, I'm not meaning by that simply Europe as the European Union, not including Britain, just Europe as a continent's fall in influence. And this has to do, doesn't it, with the shapeshift. So to my mind, the drama of 2020 is that, as it were, the terms of the competition or the relationship between China and the US have changed so dramatically. So I often get asked, like, so did China win win the pandemic? You know, look, growth rates are, are higher. I may get asked that a little less now after the Evergrande crisis. But to me, the, the significant thing that happens is that we move from the realm of a sort of competition of GDP growth rates to the realm of something much starker with regard to, to hard power. I mean, in the book, I end up saying that essentially the Americans declared a kind of economic war on China with the tech sanctions because they basically drew a line as to where America is comfortable with and will allow Chinese technological development, beyond which they don't want it to progress. And that's a sovereignty issue. That's not just an economic issue. That's a sovereignty issue. And that, I think, has moved ever more to the fore as the decisive, these are the terms, really, in which China's relationship with the United States is being debated, discussed. That's how it's defined. And to go to Helen's point, in a sense, that's precisely the the dimension in which the Europeans in the widest sense of the word have really, you know, the least influence, the least sway when it comes to growth, investment, technological development, green industrial policy. Germany is a significant partner for China in many ways, in some respects, even more significant than the United States. But when it comes to issues of sovereignty, when it comes to security issues in the Indo-Pacific, South China Sea and so on, that just isn't, you know, that, well, as we know, this is famously now up for grabs and out in the open. But Europe's position there is truly secondary. Maybe we could, Adam, we could finish with a question about time, because it is one of the themes of the book. And you've touched on it already, the sense in which things are accelerating you also say at the end, and, and Helen may have a different take on this, and, and Helen may want to put this point differently, but at the end you say, and I was really taken with this, it was almost to me like a personal manifesto, that to see the big picture, to, to see what's so hard to grasp in the helter-skelter of events, what we need actually is deeper expert knowledge of the day-to-day. It's getting into in an incredibly complicated picture and world getting into the kind of knowledge of what's actually happening, uh, often in pretty short time horizons, that that people who really know 
what's going on can inform us about, but you can't guess. That's what allows us to see the bigger picture. In this extraordinary 18 months where so much has happened, it's not always a question of sort of taking a step back and, and scanning the horizon. Often the big picture comes out of real knowledge of the day-to-day. Is that your personal manifesto? I mean, you do it better than anyone else. That is, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, the implied audience for this uh, are the, the, the readers of the New Left Review. I mean, the implied audience... <laughs> the horizon uh, scanners. <laughs> this comment are the, are, are the people who read Perry Anderson's uh, review essay of my work, which came out in, in the before times, you know, that came out in the autumn of 2019 and hung over me throughout the period of thinking about this book and caused me to think very seriously about what it is I, I do think I'm up to. But going all the way back to my first work on the history of economic statistics, I am definitely persuaded that given the protean drama of modern history and the space of change, and you know, it's, it's enormous scale, tra- catastrophic qualities, the fact that it continuously breaks expectations and changes our horizon, the likelihood of being able to rely on what you might call kind of classic formula for understanding our world, it what strikes me as improbable as a wager. And that therefore, a strategy that we might want to pursue, and, and, I, and this is going to sound ridiculously pretentious, but when I read Karl Marx's, you know, Capital Volume 1, that's what I take inspiration from, is this is a guy sitting in the British Library desperately trying to understand what factory inspectors are telling him about what's going on in cutting-edge factories at that moment and trying to crack the mystery of capitalism by going to the place, you know, as he says, where it's, as it were, most shrouded in the factory. And to do that, you need to rely on all sorts of knowledge, which is not of the left, doesn't, you know, it's not a matter of German philosophy or French revolutionary politics. It's about trying to read incredibly boring bourgeois British economists and factory inspectors as to what they tell you how this thing works. And that seems to me the model that we ought to follow in the same way, but of course, updated to the 21st century, which is why I like, you know, Helen's fantastic work on oil, because it takes us to a place where something's going on. We might not agree on whether oil is ultimately the be all and end all, but it opens up an entire realm or, you know, Daniela Garbo's work on macro finance and the repo markets, because she is opening up the logic of a system which does have huge power. And because of the force of the processes of change that we're exposed to, we have to understand now. And and we don't have the luxury of the middle distance or the long distance view. And it is in those spaces of high intensity. And this was a practice that I developed in Crashed as well, in, in places like the BIS or the economic advisors to the IMF, where they are, in fact, desperately trying to figure out how this financial system works, that you see a lot of new knowledge being produced. Of course, it's partial. And the, the, and the contribution that one can make, perhaps, as an outsider is, is to sort of stand back and place it in context. Or when they say something astonishing and don't appear to be kind of aware of just how astonishing it is, say, you know, what you just said is kind of mind blowing. And of course, you know, in the back of their minds, these people are brilliant. Like they, they have an idea that the terms of the debate are shifting, but it's genuinely helpful for them as well. You end up in quite a symbiotic relationship to have that exposed and articulated. I think that, yeah, that's the that's the sense in which I think social criticism and, you know, critical knowledge needs to be developed at this moment. I mean, these are really you know, fascinating questions. I mean, I, I, I think that I get into something of the same place as Adam, but starting sort of conceptually, perhaps differently. I mean, I think that Adam's absolutely right when he says that we're living through a great acceleration. But then the question is, is that a great acceleration of what kind? What is the story mm. in which we're living, which seems to be accelerating? And once you put it that way, then I, then I say, OK, well, can there be a great acceleration if I don't know where we're accelerating from? Or even perhaps it's OK to say we don't know where we're accelerating to. I used to think of the, the question as, what is a story in which we're living? And then I kind of came to the conclusion that actually the answer is that if there is an answer to that question, the story is the interaction between the multiple stories in which we're living. So then we have to try to understand the way in which the flows work, the interactions work, and whether that they do interact in a way that is in any sense directional. 
And I'm not entirely sure that I know what the answer to that um, question is, but I think it does raise a, in itself, but I think it raises an interesting question about where Adam's starting and sort of saying, well, let's try and see how things confront those with knowledge in power. Because if it's all about the interactions as the, as the story, would it be possible for anybody who has to work on something quite specific and has, has in some sense influence in relation to something quite specific to understand what the interactions were? And I'm presuming that if they could, that they're even more complex than they look to people like Adam and I, from, particularly to me from the outside. But if they're then that complex then maybe there is no option if you are in the, the world of power and you've got to take responsibility for using knowledge in a in a particular way to, to move back to the specific and the thing that you've got some chance of understanding. And what all that means is, I think, that's something that in different ways we're, we're all struggling with to try to understand. So, I mean, I, I love that. This is, this is a great, this is a great conversation. Um, I mean, I totally take the point that, as it were, we need a macro framing within which to situate a claim like the, the great acceleration that, that David started us with. And in shutdown, at least, I tried to be as explicit about this as possible. This is one of the reasons why I did, in fact, take up the term neoliberalism, because it provides me with the shorthand framing that I need. It takes me swiftly back to somebody like Rudiger Dornbusch. It's not the only way, obviously, of framing the political economy of the last 50 years, but it is one way of doing that economically. And, and shutdown then, as it were, crosses that with the great acceleration in the more normal sense of the word, in other words, the terminology from environmental history, which sees the period really around 1945 and its immediate aftermath as the moment of a massive acceleration of humanity's mobilisation of natural resources. So shutdown is, as it were, to answer Helen's question, like those are the two macro frames that, that I postulate, within which then I try and articulate some of this more detailed knowledge being generated by the system itself. I also entirely take Helen's point about the limitations here and the problems of complexity. I mean, I spent a certain amount, misspent a certain amount of my youth as an addict of Nicholas Luhmann, the, the great German systems theorist, who, as it were, took Helen's point to its ultimate extreme of basically postulating that modernity was a condition of our inability to perform the task that Helen just described. In other words, there was no vantage point from which everything could be interconnected and each system basically projects a vision of the world radically distinct from each other system. I find that persuasive up to a point as a kind of warning, not frankly as a Procrustean bed around which to organise your entire thinking of, of the world. And so I guess my approach is entirely pragmatic. It's an attempt to cast particular versions of coherence across these flows, across these hugely complex logics, which have a degree of internal autonomy to offer a particular reading. And in this particular case, I felt particularly moved to do it because in a sense, the question was, could I extend to speak in Marvel terms? Could I extend the universe of Crashed to 2020? And what would I see if I did? What could we see if we did? I mean, I, I take it as a really absolutely a determinedly pragmatic exercise, simply, okay, let's venture this effort and test it and see how it works. And does it help? And if not, then I think, as, as, as Helen would suggest, you know, we can't despair. <laughs> so, so then we just have to try again from some other vantage point. And the book starts by saying, look, at least at one level, we can say that Europe, the United States and China agree. They all agree that we're in a world of conflicting, converging crises. They call it differently. The Chinese have a sort of security policy approach to thinking about what they call the five effects of convergence, of overlapping and induction of crises. The Europeans just call it a polycrisis and the Americans, of course, inevitably think it all comes down to America and it's a giant national sort of existential shock. But at least we could say those three power blocks are reflecting on this condition. And, you know, a book like Shutdown is a sort of heuristic effort to sort of link those conversations together. But it, we're going to, you know, it's, it's going to have to be continuously revised and ultimately discarded for something that is that will work better at a different moment. Adam's book is called Shutdown, How Covid Shook the World's Economy. It really is fascinating. You can get it wherever you like to get your books. We still think real bookstores are best. Before we go, I wanted to tell you about another book that's just been published. It's the book that I've written. 
based on the first series of the History of Ideas. That's the series that we put out last year during the first lockdown at the start of the COVID crisis. The book's called Confronting Leviathan, and it begins where that series begins with Thomas Hobbes and his book, Leviathan, which I take to be the origin of the idea of the modern state. And it traces that idea through three plus centuries of revolutions and crises leading up to the end of the 20th century. But it also touches on quite a few of the themes that we were talking to Adam about as well. And I've been reflecting during the 18 months of lockdown and more, what we have learned about the state, what we have learned about the Leviathan. And I feel about it a bit like Adam does, and what we've just been talking to Adam about, that we've seen the double character of the state throughout this crisis. And that's one of the themes of my book, of confronting Leviathan. That at the origins of the idea of the state back in the 17th century is a basic ambiguity, and it's still there, and we still see it. This state is Hobbes's state. It is the Leviathan. It has the power of life and death over us. We gave it that power and we want it to take those decisions. And it's been taking those decisions for us. In Britain, Boris Johnson's government has that power. It confines us to our homes. It decides where we can go. And people live and die on the basis of those decisions. It feels frightening sometimes, alienating, often incompetent sometimes like a political entity we've lost control of. And yet at the same time, that state is us. We made it, we authorise it, we legitimate it. And we do what it says in part because it's doing what it thinks we want. As Adam says, lockdown is also shutdown because it's not just people being told by their governments how to behave, how to live, how to die. It's also governments trying to intuit what their people will tolerate, trying to follow what their people are doing already. A lot of lockdown was not them telling us what to do. It was them trying to decide what we were telling them to do. So that's the theme of my book as well, of confronting Leviathan, and it traces that story across the centuries. And the title, Confronting Leviathan, in that respect, is a little ambiguous, maybe even ironic. It is still the Leviathan. It is still that frightening state. And we confront it every day. And we really confronted it in the last 18 months all around the world. Different states have taken different kinds of decisions. And people have lived and died as a result. But when we confront the Leviathan, we're not just looking at something which is different from us, them and not us. We're looking at ourselves. Part of what's happened in the last 18 months is that we've seen in our politics a reflection of ourselves. And that, for me, is the quintessential character of modern politics and the modern state. It's always double. It's always both something outside us and something inside us. And I've felt strongly since we broadcast that series, which was partly a reflection on what does it mean to live in a world that is so new and so unfamiliar and still echoes a story that runs back hundreds of years. Over the last 18 months, we've really seen the character of the modern state and it's still with us for all the novelty of it. This is a familiar story and it's the story I try and tell in my book. I try and trace its origins. The podcast series and the book end with Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. And people have been reflecting on that too during the pandemic. I agree with Adam. This isn't the end of history. It's nothing like. If anything, rather than coming to an end, history has speeded up over the last 18 months. And different kinds of political time are intersecting. COVID time, climate time, crisis time. There is also at the heart of the idea of the modern state of the Leviathan another ambiguity We built the state to take long-term decisions for us. The idea of this monster, this machine, is that it can see over the horizon. It knows things that we don't know because it has a different kind of vision from us. It goes beyond the trajectory of a human lifespan. It can imagine a future that's quite hard for individual human beings to imagine. That's its point. 
It's trying to get us through to the next stage. And at the same time, the way we experience politics increasingly is the time horizons are so short. What states seem to be doing, particularly over the last 18 months, is firefighting on an almost daily basis. The state that we built to see over the horizon can't see beyond the next day. And that ambiguity is right the way through the history of modern politics too. The long-term time horizons of the artificial modern state go along with the increasingly narrow time horizons shaped by information technology, by the workings of a global economy, by the ways in which we all have fragmented and shattered attention spans. The point of the state has always been that it can hold together the long term and the short term. The idea is it doesn't just bring together the rulers and the ruled, but it brings together different time horizons. It allows them to coexist somehow in the muddle and the ambiguity of modern politics. Long term and short term come together. And yet it must be possible, and this was something I was thinking about reading Adam's book, it was something I was thinking about writing my own book. It must be possible that under early to mid 21st century conditions, the state can no longer hold these two things together. I don't think the state is falling apart yet. I don't think we've reached the end of the story of the Leviathan. But whether the Leviathan can really hold together under the intense pressures of COVID time and climate time and crisis time is still an open question. And in Confronting Leviathan, I try and take the story from Hobbes through a whole range of thinkers, Mary Wollstonecraft, Marx and Engels, Weber, Gandhi, up to Fukuyama, exploring, among other things, that question, can the state hold together under the pressures that pull it ahead and back, away from us and back towards us, towards the long term and towards the short term? I don't know the answer, but I hope in the book I explore some of the most interesting approaches and some of the most interesting thinkers and periods in which that question has been put. It's not just our question. It's been a question for many people in many places and many different times, but it is still our question. If you enjoyed the History of Ideas, the podcasts are still available too. You can hear them just by going to Talking Politics, History of Ideas, wherever you get Talking Politics. There is a second series too, telling a different kind of story about a different set of ideas, starting with Rousseau and not Hobbes. But if you did enjoy History of Ideas, I really hope you'll enjoy Confronting Leviathan too. I've tried to write it in the same style as the podcasts, following the same trajectory, telling the same stories, but updated and adapted, and I hope readable in book form. You can find Confronting Leviathan, A History of Ideas, in all good independent bookstores, and you can find the podcast, A History of Ideas, wherever you find Talking Politics. On this podcast, we've now had our summer break and we're delighted to be back. We've been reflecting a bit on politics, but also on how we do this podcast. We're coming back with a slightly different rhythm. We don't want to always be chasing the news. And so we're going to be doing this podcast fortnightly, but with the opportunity when things happen or when there are special events to broadcast extra episodes. One event we're really excited about that's coming up is a conversation that we are recording live in London in front of an audience with Hilary Mantel. Helen Thompson and I will be talking to Hilary Mantel about power, about history, about Thomas Cromwell, about the French Revolution, and about contemporary politics. If you'd like to come to that event, there are two options. You can come in person, or you can log in online and watch it as a live stream. All the details are available at lrb.co.uk. It's an LRB Talking Politics event on the 26th of October. We would love to see you there. The next episode of this podcast in our fortnightly slot will be reflecting on the outcome of the German elections, what they mean for Germany and what they mean for the rest of the world. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics.
No, thank you. That was great. When all our books have become irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. Yes, precisely. Still <laughs> <laughs> to that moment. Yeah. <laughs> this one in particular. <laughs> no. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.